Now hear God's holy word from 1 Kings chapter 20, continuing our study in the life and times of the prophet Elijah. Now Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his forces together. 32 kings were with him with horses and chariots, and he went up and besieged Samaria and made war against it. Then he sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, your silver and your gold are mine, your loveliest wives and your children are mine. And the king of Israel answered and said, My lord, O king, just as you say, I and all that I have are yours. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word that was preserved for us, that was inspired by your Holy Spirit and communicated to us down through the ages. We pray that we would be faithful stewards of it, that we would receive it and hear it and apply it correctly. So deliver us today from any distraction, from any error. Father, focus our hearts on the message that you want us to hear and learn and apply in this text this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you read reviews of movies or novels, you may have come across the term pinball protagonist. The main character of a story is identified as a pinball protagonist when they spend a significant portion of the narrative bouncing around the tale, passively responding to events and situations like a pinball. I realize that I may have to define what a pinball is for uh, under a certain age. We used to have these games, uh, you put a quarter in, you get this metal ball, and you flip it around, and it bounces off of, of, of bumpers, and it goes back and forth. You got flippers, and you get a high score. You can't save your game. Uh, there's not a story, there's not a narrative, but uh, it's real fun. You'll just have to take my word for it. If you ever see a pinball machine, ask your dad for a quarter or 50 cents or whatever they are now. But a pinball protagonist is the character in the story, a main character who just bounces around like a pinball. That pinball has no agency. It's not making decisions. It's just going wherever it's knocked. So there are these stories where the central character does not propel the story forward in and of himself. He essentially exists eternally in a reactive or responsive state. He passively responds to events and situations around him. And whatever is going on in his world, whether it's war or intrigue or romance, it just drags him along. The story drags him along in its wake. Uh, Forrest Gump is the quintessential pinball protagonist. He just does whatever he feels like doing. He responds to all these events around him and world-changing events take shape around his life and move him through the story, but he has no, uh, he's not pushing the story forward himself. He's just reacting and responding. Many times the human characters in monster movies like Godzilla or King Kong, the human characters are just there to respond. Ooh, ah, ah, and they run away. That's all the human characters are there for is to respond at the appropriate times. This is controversial, but I stand by it. Indiana Jones in the Raiders of the Lost Ark is a pinball protagonist. What does he change? In the whole story, the Germans still get the Ark, they still open it, they still get roasted. Uh, all of that would have happened if he weren't around. Uh, if he weren't there in the story, what would have changed? Maybe you disagree with me on that, but I'll fight you on it. We can have a conversation <laughs> later. 
The contrasting character type against the pinball protagonist is the action hero. Heroes actually do things. Heroes have an impact on the world around them. They pick up the plot ball and they move it forward. They're active. They're not only reactive. They take initiative to change the world around them. They're not passive and thus generally these stories are more satisfying and more inspiring. You know, like Captain Kirk. You know, he just takes command. He takes control. Batman or or Rambo. Rambo is, a, is an action hero. There's no problem too big that we can't shoot at it. We'll just shoot at it enough and then the problem gets solved. I bring this up because we've been studying the life of Elijah. Elijah is a hero who takes initiative in every way. Elijah is a hero, but he's up against wicked King Ahab, who is about as formidable as a bowl of oatmeal. Ahab is a pinball. He is a pinball antagonist, not a protagonist. He's a pinball antagonist. Ahab is not the hero of the story, but he doesn't even make a great villain in the classical sense. His entire life is marked by passivity. His wife Jezebel tells him what to do, who to worship, who to hate, and Ahab just follows along. He just obeys Jezebel. Elijah shows up and Elijah tells Ahab to do things, And when Elijah's around, Ahab obeys him too. He does exactly what he says. Ahab doesn't oppose Elijah in person. He calls him some names. But other than that, he doesn't do anything that Elijah doesn't want him to do. Now, in this account before us today, the king of Syria shows up and he tells Ahab to do things and Ahab passively accepts that too. There is no fight in him. Though Yahweh gave Ahab the sword as king of Israel to protect his people, Ahab is to be the the defender and protector, and yet he's manipulated, he's easily coerced, he's compliant, uh, and when he has the opportunity to be the hero, when he has the opportunity to really come through, he declines, he melts, he falls apart. If I asked you, what is the besetting sin of men? What what do men struggle with the most? You might say lust, or you might say gluttony, or you might say anger. But I would say, yes, those are besetting sins, but all those rest upon the sin of passivity. Passivity was the foremost failure of Adam in the garden. Passivity gives birth to a host of sins that we are called to actively root out, put off, turn from and crucify. If you're passive, you're not gonna deal with your sins and you're not gonna deal with threats that come against your life and your family. The passive man is like a city without walls. His whole life is run over. And so King Ahab is the preeminent passive antagonist. King Ahab is the ultimate weak beta male soy boy, as the young people call them today. That is King Ahab. Now, let's catch up to the story. Elijah has had his showdown on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. And then he goes to Mount Sinai to bring a covenant lawsuit against Israel. And he complains to Yahweh. He says, look, your people have broken your covenant. They've torn down the altars and they kill your prophets with the sword. What are you gonna do about this, Lord? They have have broken the contract. They have broken the covenant. And so Yahweh says to Elijah, okay, I'm gonna send three swords, I'm gonna send three forces to bring down the house of Ahab. 
You go anoint the king of Syria because Syria is going to be one of those forces. You go anoint Jehu, a captain of the Lord's army, who is going to bring down the house of Ahab. And you go anoint Elisha. And then immediately after that, we saw the calling, the ordination of Elisha. And now, as if on cue, Syria shows up to harass Ahab. And over the next three chapters, we're going to see the death spiral of the messy, idolatrous kingdom of Ahab. In this chapter, Elijah steps off the stage for a little while. Remember, Elijah said three times, he said to God, I am alone, I am alone, I am alone. I am the only one left, Lord. And then Yahweh says, you're not alone. There are 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. Keep that number in mind. 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. And now, as if there needs to be further proof that Elijah's not alone, we have these prophets showing up in chapter 20. We don't get their names, but we get these different prophets showing up, proving that there are other faithful men in Israel at this time. As we just read uh, in the beginning of chapter 20, the Syrian king Ben-Hadad gathers his forces together. All 32 of his vassal kings he brings and all their armies, and he besieges Samaria. Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. And Syria is one of the powers, is one of the swords that Yahweh stirs up to attack Ahab's kingdom, to test Ahab, to challenge him, and perhaps to bring him to repentance and obedience. God will bring challenges and tests into your life in order for you to be faithful and to strengthen you and to sanctify you. And this is what the Lord is doing here. This is an opportunity to be faithful. Now, Ben-Hadad, the Syrian king, surrounds the city and he sends messengers into Ahab and he says, your gold is mine, your silver is mine, your women are mine, and your children are mine. It's all mine. He comes with this massive, well-supplied army and he just assumes all of the wealth of Samaria is his. He wants to bankrupt them so that Israel will become another vassal of his kingdom so that they can't put up any defense. More than that though, he deliberately attacks the bride and her offspring. He attacks the women and the children. And he says, I want them too. This is a satanic attack. Satan is always after the bride and he's after the offspring. If he can take and corrupt the bride and corrupt the children, he has the future. He can control the future. If he can take the women and this Syrian, if he can take the women and the children of Ahab's royal house, he can turn them into loyal Syrians. And to all of these demands of the Syrian king, Ahab, uh, King Oatmeal, Lord Pinball, he says, sure, okay, whatever you want. He says this, here's what he says. My Lord, O king, just as you say, I and all that I have are yours. Ahab is very nice, and Ahab is very accommodating. He doesn't want to fight. He's happy to do what he's told instead of getting into a conflict. He'd rather give up anything than to fight. But if you're willing to give up your wealth, and if you're willing to give up your women, and if you're willing to give up your children, what will you fight for? What are you going to defend? What is left? Now, I expect Ben-Hadad, when he issues this demand, he was anticipating more of a response. He levels this threatening message because he wants to humiliate Ahab. And I'm sure that he's issued this declaration many times to many cities. He goes and surrounds a city and he says, I'm here and everything you have is mine. And the answer he typically gets 
should be something along the lines of, okay, come and try, or over my dead body, or if the city is particularly weak, uh, could we work something out? Could we, could we compromise? I will serve you if you do this for me. And then you proceed to either negotiations or you proceed to war. But this is a confusing response. Ahab says, okay, whatever you want, come and get it. And this doesn't get what Ben-Hadad is after, which is humiliation. He wants this city humbled, so he increases his demands. Pick up in verse five. Then the messengers came back and said, thus says Ben-Hadad, indeed, I have sent to you saying, you shall deliver to me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children, but I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and the houses of your servants, and it shall be that whatever is pleasant in your eyes, they will put in their hands and take it. So we're coming tomorrow, and we're not just taking your riches, and we're not just taking your women, and we're not just taking your children. We're going to go through all your cabinets, and we're going to go through all your drawers, and we're going to go through all your cupboards, and if we see anything that's valuable, we're taking that too. So grandma's silverware and uh, your, you know, all, of your, all of your expensive goods, we're going to take it with us as well. Verse seven, so the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, notice, please, and see how this man seeks trouble. For he sent to me for my wives, my children, my silver, my gold, and I did not deny him. So Ahab finally calls for the elders together. Maybe he should have done that at the beginning, but he doesn't. He just, he just responds to the king, but he calls the elders together now, and he says to the elders of the land, I don't know what to do. I was so nice to this Syrian invader and he's not responding to my niceness. I tried to work with the guy, but I think he's trying to be mean here. You know, I think this guy wants trouble, uh, he says. He says, see how this man seeks trouble. His eyes are open to the fact that maybe Syria is not looking out for Samaria. Verse eight, and all the elders and all the people said to him, do not listen or consent, therefore, he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, tell my lord the king all that you sent for for your servant the first time I will do, but this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought word back to him. Then Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, the gods do so to me and more also if enough dust is left of Samaria for a handful for each of the people who follow me. In other words, he says to Ahab, when we're done with Samaria, there's not gonna be enough left for every man in my army to gather up more than a handful of dust when we're done with you. There's not gonna be anything left. Then Ahab responds with something that's pretty clever. I have to give him credit for this. I kinda like this response. I don't know if it was original with Ahab, but this is a good one. So verse 11, so the king of Israel answered and said, tell him, let not the one who puts on his armor boast like the one who takes it off. Uh, so he essentially says to the other king, you're boasting like somebody who just came home from a victory. You're, boast you're talking like somebody who's taken off his armor after a long fight. But in fact, you haven't even put your armor on. You are talking as if this is over with already. Of course, this does nothing to dissuade Ben-Hadad, verse 12. And it happened when Ben-Hadad heard this message as he and the kings were drinking at the command post that he said to his servants, get ready, and they got ready to attack the city. It turns out that when he tells these kings to get ready, what they heard was open up a bottle of wine, open up another bottle of wine, pass around the bottle of whiskey, because 
all these kings are sitting around the city just getting drunk. This is just a big uh, road trip for them where they get to go live in tents and they get to go drink and they have parties with, you, with each other. And this Ahab has proven to be not a very uh, talented or frightful opponent. So they think, well, let's just party. So Ben-Hadad says to all the vassal kings, get ready, but they're all drinking and they're not gonna be ready for what is about to happen. Verse 13, suddenly a prophet approached Ahab, king of Israel. So here it is, a prophet. Uh, Elijah says, I'm the only one left and here's a prophet coming out of nowhere. This is not Elijah, this is not Elisha. Elijah was not alone, that's the point. A prophet approached Ahab saying, Thus says the Lord, have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver it into your hand today and you shall know that I am the Lord. So Ahab said, by whom? By, by whose hand are you gonna deliver us? And he says, thus says the Lord, by the young leaders of the provinces. Then he said, who will set the battle in order? And he answered, you. Then he mustered the young leaders of the provinces and there were 232 and after them he mustered all the people, all the children of Israel, 7,000. Well, there's a lot going on here. First of all, God sends this nameless prophet to Ahab. Elijah may be off discipling Elisha at this point, we don't know. Ahab though already has history with Elijah. So God sends him a fresh prophet to declare to Ahab that if he's not gonna protect his people in his city, Yahweh will. The Lord is faithful to his people, even when they are being led by a passive blockhead like Ahab. Not only this, but the Lord is gonna use very specific men to accomplish this victory. The Lord calls for the mustering of the young leaders of the provinces. He calls for the lower magistrates to get their militia together and to gather for battle. Why is this significant? Well, when Jezebel came on the scene, remember at the beginning of the story of, of, of Ahab's kingdom and Elijah shows up, when Jezebel comes on the scene, Baal worship was established as the official state religion. The state church is the church of Baal. And then she had all the prophets of the Lord killed that she could find because you can't have all this decentralized opposition out there teaching loyalty to Yahweh, obedience to God's law. You can't have them out there teaching this. So we have to centralize power because all these prophets would undermine our state-run church. The state-run church is important to Jezebel because the state Baal church will never oppose Ahab it will never contradict Jezebel. It will always go along with anything Jezebel wants because all those prophets eat at her table. All those prophets are part of her company. But you can't control all these Yahweh prophets out there, so they have to be eliminated. And she tries to do that. Now that the Lord is going to deliver Samaria from their enemy, the Lord determines to do this not through the centralized capital of Samaria, not through the centralized power of Ahab, but through the decentralized lower regional magistrates. The independent provincial heads will lead the army to victory. In addition to that, how big is the militia that they pull together? Did you pick up on that? 7,000. Why is that significant? How many did the Lord say were remaining uh, of the faithful people in Israel who had not bowed to Baal? It was 7,000. 
Now, it may not have been the exact same 7,000 head for head, but there's at least a thematic connection to whom the victory is going to come through. God is going to bring this victory through the faithful who have not bowed to Baal. And so their army is 7,000. Verse 16, so they went out at noon. This is curious. This is strange because usually you go out for battle in the morning when it's still cool. You don't want to march in the heat of the day in full armor. Uh, That would be exhausting. And once you get to the battle, you're already exhausted. But there is a strategic reason for going out in the middle of the day because the Syrians will wake up in the morning and they'll look around and all these vassal kings who got drunk the night before would say, oh, okay, I guess we're not fighting today. And then they go back to their goblets and they go back to their bottles and they go back to drinking. So they're gonna catch the Syrians off guard. They don't expect a passive king to send out an army. Meanwhile, this is the middle of verse 16, Meanwhile, Ben-Hadad and the 32 kings helping him were getting drunk at the command post. The young leaders of the provinces went out first, and Ben-Hadad sent out a patrol. And they told him, saying, men are coming out of Samaria. So he said, if they have come out for peace, take them alive. And if they have come out for war, take them alive. Have you ever heard a more drunken-sounding command? (laughs) If they come out of there for peace, take them alive. And if they come out for war, take them alive. Why didn't you just say, take them alive? And moreover, how do you take them alive if they're coming out and trying to kill you? How do you take somebody alive who is coming out for war? He wants them alive because he wants to enslave them. He wants the human resources of Israel and make them another vassal kingdom that makes him money. Uh, So he wants to keep them alive for that reason. But it's obvious. They've been drinking all morning, and this is not coming from a place of sobriety. He's not thinking this out. Verse 19, then these young leaders of the provinces went out of the city with the army which followed them, and each one killed his man. So the Syrians fled and Israel pursued them. And Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, escaped on a horse with the cavalry. Then the king of Israel went out and attacked the horses and chariots and killed the Syrians with a great slaughter. So the militia goes out, all 7,000 of them led by the 230-something provincial heads, and every one of them get their man. Every one of them kill a Syrian, which implies that there are no casualties on the side of the Israeli militia. The young men, the militia strike, and then Ahab comes out with his trained army, with his standing army following them. It's almost as if Ahab was thinking, let's let these untrained guys go out there and let's see what they do. Let's see what happens. And if they get wiped out, well, we're safe here behind the walls of the city, and, uh, and then we'll see what we do for our next move. But we'll wait. But when the victory is obvious that this militia is winning, then here comes Ahab out with his, uh, with his trained army. But Ahab still is a follower. He's not a leader. Uh, he, Ahab followed Elijah back to Jezreel, remember? Um, but they're able to drive the Syrians out and accomplish this unbelievable, decisive victory over them. Throughout this entire episode, God has been showering Ahab with his grace. Ahab does not deserve this victory. Ahab does not deserve any of this. It's all grace. It's all amazing. But Ahab has a duty to respond to this grace with repentance and obedience. How many times has God saved your bacon? <laughs> 
How many times have you received a deliverance or something amazing that you did not deserve, you weren't even expecting? And here, God puts you in a place of rest and peace and deliverance, and you think, oh, fine, now I can just go right back to my old habits and my own behaviors because God is obviously so pleased with everything that I'm doing that I don't need to make any changes. No, don't take that deliverance lightly. Don't think, oh, I can put it on cruise control and I don't have to be sanctified and I don't have to repent and obey. When you are delivered, God is giving you space and time for repentance and obedience, just as he is doing now with Ahab. And yet Ahab is not going to respond in faithfulness. Well, that prophet comes back and he issues another warning to Ahab. Let's read about that. And then we'll read about the second battle that follows. Verse 22. And the prophet came to the king of Israel and said to him, go, strengthen yourself, Take note and see what you should do, for in the spring of the year, the king of Syria will come up against you. Then the servants of the king of Syria said to him, their gods are gods of the hills. Therefore, they were stronger than we. But if we fight against them in the plain, surely we will be stronger than they. So do this thing. Dismiss the kings, each from his position, and put captains in their places. And you shall muster an army like the army that you have lost, horse for horse and chariot for chariot, then we will fight against them in the plain. Surely we will be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice and did so. So it was in the spring of the year that Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the children of Israel were mustered and given provisions and they went against them. Now the children of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats while the Syrians filled the countryside. Then a man of God came and spoke to the king of Israel and said, thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said, the Lord is the God of the hills, but he is not God of the valleys. Therefore, I will deliver all this great multitude into your hand and you shall know that I am the Lord. And they encamped opposite each other for seven days. So it was that on the seventh day, the battle was joined and the children of Israel killed 100,000 foot soldiers of the Syrians in one day. But the rest fled to Aphek into the city Then a wall fell on the 27,000 of the men who were left, and Ben-Hadad fled and went into the city into an inner chamber. So the next spring, the Syrians gather their forces again, but this time they try to draw Israel into a battle at Aphek, not up in the mountains of Samaria, but down here on the plains. Ben-Hadad's counselors mix bad theology with their politics, and they say, you know why we lost? It's obvious. It's so obvious why we lost because Yahweh is a God of the hills. I mean, look at them. They build temples on hills. They build altars on hills. Yahweh's a God of the hills. And that's why we lost because their God fights for them up at the top of the hills. But if we get them down here on the plains, our gods are gods of the plains. And then we will beat them because they won't have their God on their side. Well, the Syrians are doing this thing that... um, that, that, that they, they're proposing that Yahweh is God over here, but not over here. Well, it, it shows you that there was a time and place in history where men actually considered things beyond the natural world when making their decisions. And yet at the same time, their thinking is so mixed up with idolatry and bad theology. Yahweh is going to disabuse them of this bad idea. They're about to have their bad theology exploited this idea that Yahweh is God of the mountains only. So here the Syrians are saying, Yahweh is God up here, but he's not God down here. And they're doing exactly what many have tried throughout history, and 
many try to do today, and that is to say, you know, we can cordon off this kind of neutral territory where the triune God has no authority, he has no power, he has no influence, his law doesn't matter in this area. It matters over there, but this is secular space. This is uh, public education. This is government. This is science space. Uh, the grown-ups are talking. Don't talk about God and his laws. This is, this is where serious people live and deal and do their work. You want to talk about the reign of Jesus over all things? Keep that to Sunday morning. That's where he's God of all things. Leave it at the church. Keep that between your ears. Keep that under your hat. Jesus doesn't reign over here in public, not in serious matters. Leave all that to the religious kooks. He may be God of the mountains, but he's not God of the plains. And we do that all the time, and, and uh, Americans are great at that. We sound like Syrians, as if there's this space where Jesus doesn't reign, this part of our lives where Jesus doesn't reign. We also sound like Syrians when we act like there are parts of our lives that are beyond the scope of his redemption and his reign. God can't heal my past. He can't relieve me of the burden of things that I said or did or things that were done to me. He can't bring me peace or solve my problems or heal my marriage or help me exercise self-control because he's the God of good feelings or, or he's the God of being nice to people. Or, or he's maybe got some good principles to follow, but he's not the absolute sovereign God of all creation that reigns over whatever I'm struggling with. He's God over there, not God over here. He's just the God of the hills. Well, that is an absolute gross error. Jesus reigns over everything. The Lord's might and the extent of his reach are being challenged here, and he is going to show them, in fact, he's God of the plains also. He's also God of the city. You can't get away from him. So once again, the Syrians are going to have their heads handed to them. There's another Jericho scene where the walls of a city fall and collapse on those who are trying to get away. They're trying to take their refuge against this God. They find out he's the God of everywhere. Ben-Hadad hides in the middle of the city in a, in a keep or in a, uh, in, a, in a protected room. Verse 31, uh, the, these are the servants of Ben-Hadad speaking to him. Then his servant said to him, look now, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. That's another way of saying they're soft. They're not gonna do anything. Please let us put sackcloth around our waists and ropes around our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. I know what we'll do. We'll act like submissive captives. He will feel sorry for you and he'll just let us go. So they wore sackcloth around their waist and put ropes around their heads and came to the king of Israel and said, your servant Ben-Hadad says, please let me live. And Ahab said, is he still alive? He is my brother. Uh, he's not really his brother in, in the way that they both have the same mother, they both have the same father. All of these wicked kings consider each other brothers because they have more in common with each other than they do with the people that they rule. Remember Saul was supposed to execute King Agag, Agag of the Amalekites. Instead, Saul treated Agag like a brother instead of executing him. 
And so Ahab treats Ben-Hadad with this professional courtesy rather than treating him like the serpent who attacked his house. This is the king who said, I'm gonna take your women, I'm gonna take your children, I'm gonna take your gold, and I'm gonna take your silver. And Ahab says, oh, my brother, what a lunatic, what a weak man. This is the same Ahab. Now understand, Ahab is not too squeamish for bloodshed. This is the same Ahab that stood by passively while Jezebel killed the prophets of Yahweh. But he could let that go because the prophets could never bring him any financial gain. There's a chance that if Ahab treats Ben-Hadad well, that he could get some kind of reward here, some kind of financial gain. So the servants of Ben-Hadad are encouraged when Ahab says, oh, he's my brother, he's still alive. Oh, great, hallelujah, this is great. He's my brother, let's get together. Verse 33, now the men were watching closely to see whether any sign of mercy would come from him. And they quickly grasped at this word and said, oh, your brother, Ben-Hadad. This is better than they were expecting. <laughs> He's calling him a brother. Oh, we, we got it. So he said, go bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came out to him and he had him come up to his chariot. So Ben-Hadad said to him, the cities which my father took from your father, I will restore. And you may set up marketplaces for yourself in Damascus as my father did in Samaria. There it is, the promise of financial reward. You spare my life, I'm gonna give you some cities back. And I'm also gonna let you set up marketplaces and stores in all my cities so you can sell your stuff and you can collect the revenue. Then Ahab said, I will send you away with this treaty. So he made a treaty with him and sent him away. As king of Israel, Ahab was given the sword to execute the Lord's enemies. God delivered the serpent into his hand and gave him the opportunity to be faithful here. Have you ever worked on a project with a small child? You're taking something apart or you're putting something back together and you, and you, you get down to the last screw or the last couple of screws. Maybe you just got one half turn of the screwdriver. They say, come here, come here. And you put the screwdriver in and uh, you put it in the screw, and they say, okay, turn it, turn it to the right, and they turn it to the right, and you say, yay, we did it, we finished, you fixed it, yay, we fixed it. Yeah, no, you just turn the screw a little bit at the very end, but you involve them, and they're so happy, and they think they, they, think they really did something amazing. Well, this is what the Lord is doing. He takes care of the entire victory. He beats the Syrian army, not once, but twice. And he brings them down to the very end and he delivers into his hand the king of Syria. He has him. He doesn't even have to fight for him. All he has to do is be faithful to execute him. That's all he has to do. All he has to do is turn the screwdriver a quarter turn and it's done. And he doesn't. He completely drops the ball. Repentance for all of this evil that Ahab has done so far would have come in the form of faithful warfare against the serpent. But he makes an agreement with him. He compromises. He makes a treaty. He meets him halfway and he lets him go. But he wasn't Ahab's captive to let go. He was Yahweh's captive. So all of this is gonna come back on Ahab's head in the form of judgment. If you're not gonna destroy the Lord's enemies when he gives you the opportunity to do so, Yahweh will destroy you. Well, another prophet shows up to act out this lesson and we get an epilogue with two, two different object lessons. Verse 35. Now a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to his neighbor by the word of the Lord, strike me please. And the man refused to strike him. 
Then he said to him, because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, surely as soon as you depart from me, a lion shall kill you. And as soon as he left him, a lion found him and killed him. So here's the first object lesson. Another prophet shows up. We don't know his name. He's nameless, but he shows up and the prophet finds somebody and he says, hit me. The guy says, what? What hits you? Yeah, God says, hit me, hit me. The Lord, by the word of the Lord, I'm the prophet of the Lord and I'm telling you to hit me. The guy said, I'm not gonna hit you. What do you mean? I'm not gonna hit you. The guy says, no. And the prophet says, okay, you don't do what the Lord says. A lion is gonna eat you. And then he does. He does get et by a lion. The meaning here of this object lesson is that Ahab was told to strike Ben-Hadad. Ahab was supposed to strike Ben-Hadad, but he refused. So a lion is going to kill him. Now the lion is Assyria. Uh, Nahum calls Assyria a lion. The prophet Nahum calls Assyria a lion. Lions are associated with the Assyrian kingdom, the Assyrian empire. So the, the object lesson here is that you refuse to strike when God tells you to, a lion is gonna come kill Israel because they won't listen to the prophets. That's the first object lesson. The second object lesson is in verse 37. This prophet found another man and said, strike me please. So the man struck him, inflicting a wound. Then the prophet departed and waited for the king by the road and disguised himself with a bandage over his eyes. Now as the king passed by, he cried out to the king and said, your servant went out into the midst of the battle and there a man came over and brought a man to me and said, guard this man. If by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life or else you shall pay a talent of silver. While your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. Then the king of Israel said to him, so shall your judgment be. You yourself has decided it. And he hastened to take the bandage away from his eyes and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. Then he said to him, Thus says the Lord, because you have let slip out of your hand a man whom I appointed to utter destruction, therefore your life shall go for his life and your people for his people. So the king of Israel went to his house sullen and displeased and came to Samaria. On the second attempt, the prophet asked someone, hit me, what, hit you, hit me. The Lord says, hit me. And this other guy says, okay, I'll hit you. And he hits him and he wounds him. He gives him a head wound. So the prophet wraps up his head and he waits by the roadside for the king to pass by. And he says, hey, king, I've got a story for you. I've got something to tell you. I was supposed to watch a prisoner after this last war, but I let him go. And the punishment was that I was supposed to either pay with my life or pay a talent of silver. And Ahab says, well, that sounds like a pretty good punishment to me, your life for his, so let it be done. Do you remember how Nathan roped David into declaring his own punishment? Remember how Nathan told that story that got David to declare his own guilt? Well, this prophet does the same thing. This prophet draws in Ahab. Uh, uh, the prophet takes off his bandage and Ahab says, oh, you're one of those prophet guys, aren't you? He notices him, he recognizes him. And, uh, and the prophet says, okay, Ahab, so this is what you think about guys who let prisoners go. You think they ought to be killed. Is that what you're saying, Ahab? You see, there was another opportunity here for Ahab to show mercy and say, okay, just pay the silver and we're all even. But Ahab went for the harshest punishment. So that's what you're gonna get, Ahab. Ben-Hadad had his head wounded. He had his head injured. He had his head wrapped in a rope, just like this prophet. And it was up to Ahab to finish the job. And instead, Ahab let him go. And so the prophet says, therefore, your life shall go for his life and your people for his people. Now, how does Ahab respond to this? Does he rip his garment? 
Does he put ashes on his head? Does he fall down and cry out to God and confess his sins with the words of the Psalms? No. This is another opportunity for Ahab to make things right. How many chances has Ahab been given to repent? Can you even keep track? How many times has God delivered Ahab and how has Ahab responded to all these displays of mercy and kindness and grace? How does Ahab respond to the words of the prophet? He's sullen and displeased. That's not repentance. Feeling sorry for yourself is not repentance. He sulks his way back home. He doesn't repent. He gets mad and he mopes. Ahab joins King Saul in the hall of failure, the hall of epic disappointment. Why does Yahweh insist upon the execution of men like Ben-Hadad? Why does God insist upon the execution of Agag under Saul? Why does God insist upon the extermination of the Canaanite people? Why does he expect this? It's so uncomfortable to our modern sensibilities. We think, oh, that's so cruel, and it's so mean, and it's so hateful. Why does God want that? And, and what instruction does any of this have for Christians? The primary relevance of these kinds of stories for us is that just as Yahweh would tolerate no rivals for the affections and worship of his people, so Christ will have dominion over everything, both mountains and valleys, and every knee will bow to him. Yahweh did not put up with rivals. Jesus will have no rivals to his reign as king. These accounts demonstrate to us that Jesus will accept nothing less than absolute reign over everything for eternity. The wicked may rise up, they may flourish for a time, they may look like they're unstoppable, they may look like they're invulnerable, but at some point all of these enemies begin to fade. They're all exposed in their frailty. We see this big army camped around Samaria and we just peel away the layers a little bit and we see they're all drunk and they're not ready to fight. And all we have to do is go out there ready to fight. We go with our militia and we run out there and they run off. They always make these big boasts and they always make you think that they're so formidable, but you attack them and they fold. So the Psalms say, do not fret because of evildoers. Rejoice in the king by whom and for whom all things were created. These enemies are easily vanquished because Jesus reigns and evil tyrants don't. So if we want to protest against God's zero tolerance policy on idolatry, in the Old Covenant. If we want to bring that, if we want to bring that protest, understand that that is also a protest to the reign of Christ. Do, do you maintain that these aggressively pagan, violent, idolatrous kings and these people should have been spared? Do you want to argue that Ben Hadad should have been left alone and not executed? Uh, here, let me ask you a different way. Are you okay with 50% of Christ's dominion? Are you okay with two-thirds of the reign of Christ? Do you want Jesus to only conquer about 40% of your sins and let the rest go? See, it's not a coincidence that a church that gets queasy on the warfare language of the Bible is a church that is also soft on sin. When we understand what the warfare in the scriptures is all about, then we get tough on sin, not 
the sin of the world and the sin that is in us. This is where we start. The sin that is in our own house, we want conquered and destroyed. But these two things go together. If you're, if you're a little bit nauseated by the warfare of the Bible, then you're gonna be very soft on your own sin and sin all over the place. Either we want Jesus to rule over everything or we get good at tolerating rivals and idols to the reign of Jesus. What these accounts teach us is that there is no compromise with the enemy. There are no treaties with the enemy. Only battle all the way until the victory is accomplished. Did Moses call off the plagues after about nine plagues and go have a drink with Pharaoh and just kind of knock back and take some time off? Hey, Pharaoh, man, see them locusts? Well, that was crazy, wasn't it? Did you see all them frogs? Wow, man, that was some crazy stuff, wasn't it? Did David fight Goliath to a draw? and then just kind of shake hands and smoke cigars and hang out with Goliath? Did Jesus take the devil out to supper after the temptation in the wilderness and act like friends? Did he call him brother? Pagans are content with all kinds of corrupt allegiances. They're content calling enemies brothers. They're fine with the pantheon of gods because none of it's real to them. But we insist that God has put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, that we are at war. We acknowledge that we are at war with everything that sets up itself as a rival against the kingdom of Christ. And we don't let serpents run free. Ahab was miraculously delivered by God from this immense threat. And the head of the serpent was right in his hands for him to do his job and finish the battle. And Ahab failed. Likewise, God has delivered you from the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of death. And as long as you're being sanctified, he is delivering into your hand. He is exposing sins and attitudes and behaviors that you need to strike and put to death. Here it is, your sin. Here it is. Bring it out. It's this ugly, slimy little lizard creature, or this poisonous little troll, or a boozing Syrian king, however you want to picture it. Here's your opportunity. He's right here. Kill it. Will you not confess it and repent of it and crucify it? Or do you say, no, we'll just let him go. Maybe I can domesticate it. I've got this. It's fine. He's my pet. He's my brother. I'll just keep him in a cage. Jesus, you get to rule everything else. I'll take care of this. This is mine. I'll just let this monster hang out in my living room. I kind of like him. I'll just feed him. And he grows and he destroys everything. Your eyes are being opened to idols by the Holy Spirit. Your eyes are being opened to them so that you can defeat them not to make peace with them, not to make room for them, not to watch passively reacting, bouncing between them like a pinball, but to take initiative and crush the head of the serpent wherever you have opportunity to do so and to press the kingdom of Jesus into every corner of your life and your house and your job and your world. That is what we're called to do. Don't be a weakling like Ahab. When you have it exposed before you, crush it in the name of Jesus 
and, and, and cry out for victory over the things that so easily beset us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask you for your strength and for your spirit to avoid the sin of Ahab, to avoid this passivity and weakness. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to evils and sins and bad attitudes and to, to show us our blind spots so that we can continue to have victory in your name over everything that rivals the reign of Jesus in us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.